let's look at the actual definition. Like, what does health literacy mean? And on broad strokes, it literally is talking about the skills needed to make appropriate health decisions and successfully navigate the healthcare system. Welcome back to another episode of That Vet Life. Today, it is again just me, myself, and I in this microphone to come and chat with you guys about like more niche area of client communications and more specifically on the topic of health literacy. This may or may not be a term you've heard before. Maybe that's in vet school. Maybe it's just been in passing by an article. But this is really important if you're in practice or if you are a veterinary student just to figure out what is it what does it mean for us and our clients and our patients? And what do we do with this information? So those are going to be the three main things that we focus on here today. I have a lot of research articles that I've been diving into, which, you know, it just gets my nerd brain going. So we're going to chat about all those different things. So let's launch into today's episode. Okay, so this topic of health literacy, like what is it? What does it mean? And why are we talking about it in veterinary medicine? Well, let's look at the actual definition. Like, what does health literacy mean? And on broad strokes, it literally is talking about the skills needed to make appropriate health decisions and successfully navigate the healthcare system. So, there's a lot of little bits that go into that. So, the first part actually having the skills needed to make appropriate health decisions. Now, one thing to remember is that all of these definitions are really coming from the human side of medicine. We don't have too much about health literacy or health literacy guidelines in veterinary medicine. So terminology is, it'll say looking at the patient, but the patient is actually going to be the client. So bear with me, we'll follow along. So let's go back to that. So the skills needed to make appropriate health decisions. So what are those skills? So we're looking at our clients and we're saying, okay, for in order for you to make a decision on Fluffy or Butters or whatever your pet's name is, you have to understand A, how to read at its most basic form. You need to know how to read, how to follow instructions, how to do basic math of, uh, say, you have a prescription label that says give one and a half tablets. Like, it's not a hard thing. These are all basic things, and yet they can be barriers to how our clients are able to provide care for their pets or our patients at home. And as a result allow them to successfully navigate the healthcare system. And it, thankfully, in our world of veterinary medicine, it's still a rather basic setup where you go to your veterinarian and that's where they provide all the services. You go there for their dental care, you go there for their ears, their eyes, their heart. And, but now we do have more, we do have specialists in pretty much every single area. But in general, the healthcare system in veterinary medicine is not as confusing as it would be in human medicine, especially with when you start going into the nitty gritty of the referrals. But let's go back to that main definition. So the skills needed to make appropriate health decisions and successfully navigate the healthcare system. That is the broad strokes of the definition of health literacy. So how are we measuring health literacy? If you go into the American Medical Association, they actually have ways of measuring health literacy in their patients or clients. And they are essentially asking them, do you understand these words? Can you follow simple instructions? And based off of that, they have an algorithm. And so there's actual data sets that you can look at to understand, yes, they physically have measured health literacy and put it on a scale. So they have gone and broken it down by socio-demographic regions 
And they have found, here's the interesting part, most adults, so most meaning more than 50%, can read at an eighth grade level. However, there are a lot of uh, people that still cannot read at that level, and they are third to fifth grade levels. And to put that into perspective, I went into Common Core, which if you're in the U.S., you're familiar with the Common Core. Um, and it's just looking at breakdown of what you are expected to be able to learn in grade six. This is a uh, middle school for most people. And essentially, you should be able to, amongst other things, be able to read a, a basic sentence and understand how that sentence fits into the grander texture or context of what you're reading. That's just like one tiny little bit of Common Core. But that's a big deal when you are talking about medical information. So if you are reading a medical text or discharge instructions, and you have to understand what the grander context is and understand how the different sentences fit into that grander context so that you can then provide the care at home for Fluffy, whether that be giving a medication, applying a topical, measuring heart rate, um, measuring respiratory rate, all of those different things are going to be in those discharge instructions. And if you can't put that the information into the grander context of why that's important, then we are going to struggle. We're going to have a communication breakdown. So going back to this. So most adults can read at an eighth grade level. However, most articles, and this is what's really interesting, most articles, whether it's veterinary or whether it's American Medical Association or human medicine, they are written at a 10th grade or higher level. So Right already there, we can see that there is going to be a huge disconnect. So most people can read at eighth grade, but they're being pre-handed information that is above their reading level. And if you remember going back to elementary school or sixth grade, if you had those big kid books and you tried to read them, you really struggled and you got frustrated and chances are you didn't get the full picture of what was actually happening or what you were supposed to understand as a result. So that is a huge breakdown that we have going on right there. So let's look at what that impact is beyond just being frustrated that you don't know the big words or you don't understand how it all fits together. This is more of an impact on your client care, uh, your patient care, excuse me, and your client's compliance. So from one aspect, let's look at the compliance level or even, even below deeper than that. Let's look at the trust that this client has in their practitioner, in their veterinarian, if they don't understand the information that's being provided to them. So if you look at human nature, we like to be self-sufficient. We like to understand things on our own, be able to do things on our own. And when that is taken away from us, we, we honestly, <laughs> we get frustrated and we can place blame on the other person who's taking that away from us. So while we as veterinarians are not physically trying to take responsibility away from our clients, we, in a way, are taking away their what is the word of their ownership over what's going on with their pet when we don't provide information in a way that they understand. So a client, if you hand them information about Fluffy's ear infection, but they don't understand the pamphlet, they don't understand how to properly apply the medication, they're going to be frustrated. Fluffy's not going to get the medication, but the client is not going to necessarily trust you as much with further information because they don't feel that they were understood. They didn't feel that they were given the space to ask questions. There's just going to be a breakdown in trust there. 
And on the flip side, that is going to impact whether or not that client likely comes back for their ear recheck, which we know is one of the most frustrating things when you say, come back in two weeks. And four months later, they come back and they're like, the ear infection is still here. And then us as veterinarians, we say, well, it's because they didn't come back when they were supposed to. Yes, but what if it's actually from a lack of education, not necessarily from a lack of trying, but we'll get to that later. So it impacts clients' trust of their veterinarian, but it also impacts their compliance with the, with the treatment plan. And as a result, it is going to negatively impact our patient's care. If we're dealing with an ear infection, Fluffy's ear is probably not going to be flushed or medicated appropriately and yada, yada, yada. So this is a, a very multi-level type of issue that we're looking at. So let's look at this. Our problem, health literacy, people not having the skills needed to make appropriate health decisions, this is having the outcomes of decreased trust in their clients and, and the, the veterinarian, excuse me, uh, decreased compliance with the treatment protocols. We're having poor patient outcomes. And a lot of times we're seeing this sometimes with the acute things like an ear infection or a torn toenail. But more often than not, it is with our chronic issues. So say you have a dog that you're like, they need a dental. And every single time they come back, you're like, you need a dental, need a dental. Or it's that dog that has Cushing's or diabetes or you name it, any kind of chronic issue, allergies. Oh my goodness, that's a big one. And uh, those are going to be the pets that if the client doesn't have proper health literacy or we're not providing information in a way that they can understand at their level, those chronic diseases are going to be left uncontrolled. And as a result, the patient will suffer. So that is the the long and skinny version of everything. So let's go into why do we have that problem of poor health literacy? Why don't people seem to understand? Well, there's a couple different issues that are going on here. Part of it, we are dealing with the actual education that the person was able to achieve before leading up to when you meet them. And this is definitely not a blame the health, the, the education system. No, 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 no. Remove that from your dictionary. We're not talking about that. We are talking about the level that the person just was able to receive in their life. So that's one thing. Chances are they did graduate high school, but even then, did they really reach or are they still maintaining that level of reading of capabilities? Don't know. More importantly or more impactfully, if that's impactfully, okay, is going to be their age. So looking at the breakdown of what age groups, so removing um, actual like socioeconomic or some of sociodemographic um, areas, what am I thinking of? Yes. Anyway, going back to age, then the groups that are going to have the lower areas or the lower levels of health literacy are actually the ones that are 65 and above. And this isn't, again, to say, well, they just never reached a certain level in their education. No, no, no. Chances are it's actually due to their declining cognition. So we know that older groups of people, their their hearing isn't as great, their sight isn't as good, their ability to remember things is not near as good as it used to be. Oh, heck, even for me right now, there's times where I walk out of the room and I forget what I'm trying to do. So uh, that is one big thing. If you have a very large older population, chances are you need to be tailoring how you provide information to them different than you would say someone who's in their 20s and 30s. It is just a a tactic that you have to be aware of and so that you can modify it, improve your client compliance and improve your patient outcomes that way. So looking at age is a huge one. 
Language is the second one. That's a huge barrier for a lot of areas. Maybe you have a very multicultural, healthy multicultural area, but you as a practice, you only speak one primary language. That's going to cause a breakdown just because of how you're able to um, communicate with other people. And as a result, it's going to impact what they're able to understand, the kind of care that they're able to provide, and so on and so forth. And so those would be the main areas that we look at as why do we have this problem of poor health literacy? But in the end of the day, it comes down to identifying what that level of health literacy is and being able to provide as a practitioner the type of um, materials and information that those people need in order to provide adequate care to their pets. Now, just before we get on with the show, a quick word from our sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at Venex. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like you're an imposter or burning out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you are not broken. You're not a bad fit for the profession. Much more likely you are missing some super important foundational skills no one is teaching at university. Skills that you will learn as part of our Vetex community. The Thrive Community is a race-accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits, and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Now we're going to get back to part two of that Vet Life podcast. Over to you, Mo. So let's look at the next question, which is what do we do about it? <laughs> we have this problem. Health literacy is not where we'd like it to be because remember, we are veterinarians. We have graduated high school, we've graduated undergrad, and we've graduated vet school. We have a lot of degrees, we know a lot of fancy words. Doesn't mean we actually need to use said words when we are talking to our clients. So let's break this down. So what are we going to do about this? Well, we're not going to suddenly magically make everybody have the same level of health literacy that we do. That is just not something that will ever happen, really. So what we can do when we are providing our information, so we're going to look first at the documents that we are able to provide our clients. And the first thing is actually targeting the right audience. So remember how we talked about age and the differences that will occur there. If you're able to like, maybe have separate documents that are for different age groups so that they're more, maybe larger letter print. That's a huge one. Using a paper that is, again, just like a little bit bigger, larger letter print and actually targeting using jargon that those age groups or those demographics would better understand. So if you are dealing with, again, uh, older versus younger generations, maybe with the older generations, you don't want to use like pet parent or dog mom. That's going to be something that people in their 30s, 20s, maybe early 40s will better associate with and calling themselves a dog mom, and they'll be drawn to those type of languages or or that type of um, wording that's being used. In the same frame line, frame line, (laughs) the same uh, uh, vein, then would be being present on social media. And this is a bit of a sticky situation just because of how fast social media has been progressing. And I know we've had issues with how are veterinarians supposed to be on social media? How are they supposed to present themselves? Should they be sharing their daily lives? 
on the same account as when they do their professional type of work. And that's not exactly something that I'm going to touch on here today. However, I think it is very important to recognize that social media is here to stay. And that is where our clients are getting a lot of information. So it's not just Dr. Google anymore. It's Dr. TikTok. It's Dr. Instagram Reels. And uh, that is where a lot of misinformation is being spewed. So it is very important for us as practitioners to be present in those areas. Granted, it is very much a dog-eat-dog world, and I think there needs to be guidelines put in place for how we should appropriately be presenting ourselves and interacting with the general public in those spaces. But it doesn't erase the fact that we need to be there. We need to be pushing out our information so that what is the most common thing that the algorithm is going to pick up? the right information, the safe information, the the information that's actually going to help pets. So that is something that we need to really be nailing down on, which again, is really frustrating because right now we don't have any solid social media health literacy guidelines to go off of. So we're just kind of throwing things at the wall and hoping that they stick. So maybe in the next year or two, we'll be able to catch up and get ahead of this so that we can actually have some solid guidelines because we don't even have guidelines necessarily for veterinary medicine for written documentation. All everything that we have is honestly extrapolated from the human healthcare system. And while that's not wrong, there's just differences between dealing with humans as the patient and client versus dealing with pets as the patient and humans as the client. So a little bit uh, of a language difference that we need to be aware of there. Okay, so we've talked about targeting the right audience, going where our audience is, and that's by using social media and pushing out um, online documents, using your practice's website. If your practice website is not good, people aren't going to go there. They're not going to trust what it looks like, and thus they're not going to click on that article about heartworm prevention or flea and tick medication or how to choose the right diet for your dog, like all of those things. That's a good place to put out your information. But if your website doesn't look up to shape, um, people aren't going to click on it. So again, that's a topic for another day, but it's something to be very aware of. So the next thing that we're going to look at is we've talked about what is the problem? What are we going to do about it? Which I'm going to dive a little bit more into that, I guess, before we go to the next question. Let's finish off what we're going to do about it. So we've talked about the social media side of it and the online side of it. But what about the written documentation side of it? So there is a whole part of uh, providing information to our clients and remembering how much information can they take on board in the course of their appointment and how much information should we be providing in written documentations. And remember, this is something that even if you have it, chances are it's written at a level that's way too high for our clients to A, easily absorb and digest and actually want to read all the way through. And if you look at a great number of your articles that you have or handouts that you have for your clients, chances are it's a lot of words, not a lot of pictures, not a lot of white space. And if they were to open it and look at it, they might read the first two headings and then say this is too much and throw it to the side as most of our pamphlets end up being. So things that we need to be considering, and this is honestly, again, coming from human medicine, is if you are developing handouts for your clients, they need to be written at a sixth grade or lower level. They need to have uh, fair-sized words and letters so that they can be easily seen and read. They need to have lots of descriptive pictures so that the clients understand. And these pictures need to actually have something to do with the thing that you're talking about. 
Nothing is more frustrating in talking about one thing and having a picture that's completely different. So if it's something about like a dog-specific disease, don't have pictures of cats on there. Like it doesn't make any sense to do that. So that's just a little example. And then let's see here. So we talked about pictures. We talked about uh, letter font. Having enough white space. Honestly, that is a big part. Yeah, I know for us, we're like, we need to put all the information that the client needs to know or might need to know. The truth is they only need information that they need to know. If you start throwing in too many different little things, they're going to get confused. They're going to get lost. They're going to get frustrated and throw it to the side. So just have the information that they need to know. Really slim it down, have lots of white space. It gives them room to breathe. And that way you'll be able to more effectively provide information for your clients. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the actual documentations that you can be sending home on your handouts. Now, what are we doing about our communication in the consult room? So this is a really important point, And I really want our veterinary students to listen to this part because there are communication courses that we're now introducing to vet schools. Granted, a lot of them have a long way to go, but we're going in the right direction. But as a vet student, this is something that when you graduate, it is really hard. Like it is really, really hard. I remember for myself to take the big medical jargon that you were taught in vet school and break it down into what's called a living room chap for your clients and just putting words in ways that they understand. So instead of using words like we're going to take a radiograph of Fluffy's leg or of Fluffy's fractured leg, you're just going to say, I'm going to take an x-ray of Fluffy's leg and see if it's broken or not. Really break it down. Super simple. You don't need medical jargon unless you are speaking with someone that has that understanding or you've built things up to that point. But keep it simple, stupid. Like really, there's no need to go to that extra level. Okay, so we talked about medical jargon and using appropriate one, but let's back it up and let's actually talk about our body language because ways that we present ourselves will be, again, that area of building that trust. So before you've even opened your mouth, the way that you walk into the room, where you sit or stand, if you have open or closed body language, those are all going to be things that establish a basis of trust with your client before you've even said those non-medical words and you've uh, not used medical jargon. So leaving space for questions is really important. Being able to not just say, do you have any questions, but what questions do you have? Actually spark the question, because if they're having any questions in their mind, but they don't want to sound stupid, they're probably going to say, no, I don't have any questions. But if you say, what questions do you have? They can say, well, I guess I do kind of have that question and it opens up the conversation a bit more. So think about your body language. Think about the actual way that you're asking questions. And if you um, have a big consult that you know you have like 15 different things that you need to talk about, break it down. Honestly, think about scheduling multiple appointments to go over everything or have phone calls lined up or email systems lined up so that you can continue the conversation after the appointment. Because it's just human nature. We can't absorb more than two or three things in the span of that 20, 30 minutes. It's just not fair to you. It's just not fair to your client. It's just not fair to that patient to try and cram everything in and expect them to remember it. Other ways that you can ensure that clients are understanding you is to do the ask me three approach, which literally, even if they haven't asked you any questions, you want to ask them to repeat back to you what is the main problem? And what are you guys going to do about it? What's the treatment plan you as a team are deciding upon? And three, why is it important to follow through on the plan that you have? So that's the ask me three approach. 
Next is to speak slowly. This was something that I am still working on as a as a grad. Uh, I'm not even a new graduate anymore. Who am I? But as a early career veterinarian is when you come out of vet school, you just start to word vomit and you need to remember to slow down. When you slow down, it provides you time to think. It provides your client time to process and it builds a basis of trust because you're saying, I'm taking time to explain this to you. I want to make sure you fully understand it. And it changes the tone of voice that you're using from one that's really, really fast and up here and really thinking like, but, 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 to, okay, we're going to slow it down. We're going to break this down. We're going to take our time. Like, as you can see, that already just makes you more relaxed. And then the last little part, last little part, <laughs> last little bit, if I slow myself down, is to just be aware of the body language that your client is showing. Are they using open or closed body language? What's their blink rate? Are they blinking really, really fast, which can be a sign of stress? Or is their blink rate nice and slow, showing that they're actually paying attention and that they're comprehending and that they're not under um, a great amount of stress? So those are all little things that you can be looking at. And you can utilize your body language. So utilize things like mirroring. And if you lean in closer to them or lean back, If you open or close your arms um, or change how you're sitting, all of those things will help. They'll try and mirror that, and that can be really beneficial if you feel like they're getting tense and and uptight. If you try to get them to mirror a relaxed body language, sometimes that can move the conversation along. And again, I feel like that's something that we need to go into in another episode, and that's just a little taster. But if you look up mirror neurons and um, body language mirroring right there, that'll be a really fun um, place for you to nerd out. Okay, so we're starting to run short on today's episode, and I feel like we've really covered a lot of ground on this topic of health literacy, and I hope that it has sparked some interest and um, information for you guys, and that the next question that I have is, like, what are you going to do with this information that we've just talked about here? And what I'd recommend for you is that if you're a student at the next clinic that you're at, pull out some of those articles or their handouts, read through them and evaluate them. Do you think that they meet a sixth grade or lower reading capacity? Do they have lots of pictures? Do they have lots of white space? Do you think they're easy to understand? If they're not, then maybe you should think about how you yourself would rewrite that information. Or also think about how would you put that into your spiel that you're talking with a client? Practice those spiels. The more confident and comfortable that you are, the slower that you'll speak, the easier it'll be for you to implement that ask me three approach or um, chunk and check, whatever you want to call it. That'll be really beneficial for how you um, handle future clients. If you're already in practice, do the same thing. Sit down with a colleague and say, hey, this is my spiel on allergies. Does it make sense? I've just been using it for so many months and I don't even really realize it anymore. So having someone to really review those methods that you have will be really beneficial for how you handle your future clients. And also just be really aware and conscious about what your body language is saying. This goes back to that early stage of trust and building that so that when you do actually start to use words on top in your console, that you can start out with a good layer of trust. So no matter what their level of health literacy is, it provides the space to ask those questions and start a good relationship with your client. So that's what I would say um, to do with this information. Granted, if you guys are listening to this and you're like, you know, I have some really good pointers on that that I'd like to add, send them my way. I'd love to hear them. And also, if you guys want to hear more episodes like this, let me know because I love to nerd out on these different things and kind of go into more niche topics. 
So that would be my recommendation and my call to you guys that if you have any more questions, do reach out and let us know. But otherwise, um, if you want to connect, you can definitely do that through social media on Instagram at dr.mariahmacaulay um, on Instagram and then uh, the VEDEX International on the website and also the Facebook group. But that is where I will wrap it up for here today, you guys. Uh, thank you for joining me. And until next week, see ya. And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also, don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the VEDEX community for free to get access to a bonus version of this show. You'll also get some free swag and many, many other amazing benefits. Also, leaving a review of the show on iTunes would be greatly appreciated because, again, it just helps get the word out. But until next time, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That Fat Life.